Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a bright day in a rather deserted city of Westminster in current times, as once again we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on the topic of leadership. I am Scott Challoner and I'm joined on today's programme by Michael Dooley. Michael is the Managing Director at Strathkelvin Instruments, a company based in North Lanarkshire, Scotland, which develops instruments for use in the biomedical research field. Michael, welcome to the programme and it's great to have you on the air with us today. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Thank you, Michael, for, of course, taking the time to come onto the programme and speak uh, with us for the benefit of the listeners. Now, Michael, the purpose of this discussion is really to gather your take on the topic of leadership. So if we dive straight in, first and foremost, what I'd like to understand is what that word leader actually means to you personally. Okay, so when I look at leadership, I look at it from two um, different perspectives. First of all, there's a a technical perspective because we are very much a research and development-based organization. And being an engineer by training, um, I've been in the technical field for all of my career. But probably more importantly than that, it's leadership in terms of people and organizational development. And really for me, a leader is somebody who delivers the vision of the organization by motivating, training, and developing the people and the organization to be better than they themselves are. So for me, a true leader is somebody who wants to take their staff over and beyond what they have achieved personally in their own lives. Mm. Really, really interesting way of looking at it, uh, Michael. And if you were to describe your own style of leadership and your way of aligning with uh, that view that you have there, how would you describe that? Probably first and foremost, I'm an engineer. Um, So my main leadership strengths are in the, the technical field in terms of developing solutions to specific problems that um, my customers, clients, or even the organization has. Um, But I do also try, and it's probably not my greatest strength, to develop our people, to motivate them to um, look at what I do. Um, Learning from them, of course, I think is is, is a very important part of the process because um, I'm very much of the view that leadership is a 360-degree process. So we really try and develop and train our staff to think laterally, think outside the box, and look for solutions and different ways of doing things um, and to develop new processes, new services for the customer um, and to develop themselves in areas that they feel that they want to move forward within their own careers and lives. I think that's hugely important, uh, Michael, looking at how to develop uh, those around you as well, because giving them the confidence, of course, to try new things, maybe be prepared to have one or two setbacks um, as well, and then embrace those experiences and learning curves. I think that's vital in helping people develop into what's going to be that next generation um, of leaders um, in a way, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. And I think one of the things that holds us all back um, and hold businesses back and indeed the, the whole country is um, fear of failure. Um, mm. You know, failure, while we try and avoid it and we try and mitigate the consequences of it as much as we can, um, is perhaps the best learning opportunity and the best development opportunity for people. Um, so, you know, what we try and do is encourage people to feel confident about trying new things and, and developing different processes. Um, and trying to mitigate and protect the organization and, and themselves from 
um, any consequences of failure, but allowing them to move forward with confidence. And once uh, people have confidence in the fact that they will be supported and that they will move forward, then the benefits far outweigh the, the downsides of the, of the potential uh, innovation that they try and implement. And I think this is just as applicable to leaders themselves, um, isn't it, Michael? Because they're in a constant process of development um, in a way, aren't they? We're never the finished product, even when we're essentially running the whole show. Oh, absolutely. And, and this is what I said. You, you can learn from uh, leadership styles and processes from people that you work for, from your clients, from your customers, from um, your employees, from um, everybody, even your children people in the street and I've always had the view that there are um, two types of, of learning process there's, mm. there's a positive learning process where you look at what somebody does positively and you, you put that in your toolbox as it were and something that you can use for going forward but we all have negative experiences of, of life and, and career and industry and we all um, will meet very good and very bad leaders and sometimes the people who are not so good at leading can teach you as much about leadership and about uh, how to run a company and a business and, and a career as much as the people who are very, very good at it. And it's a, it's a toolbox that we can um, build as our career goes on, but we never stop learning. We never stop developing. I think even as we move into retirement and look at different options, there are lots of opportunities for us. Mm, for sure. And it's um, I think it's very interesting that um, we look at leadership as being very much a learning process there, Michael, because I suppose there are some out there who may align with the thought that maybe good leaders are born that way. But in some ways, I think, whereas you can be born with certain qualities, I think you have to pick up certain skills and also learn to develop those qualities that you have as well. That's important uh, not to uh, forget, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. And I think as um I've moved from sort of blue chip organizations, started with ICI and met some great leaders there and, and had a, a company with a huge amount of support and a huge amount of department that would support you from HR, financial um, and people development points of view. And then as I've moved into running a very small business, um, you realize that, um, you know, those support networks are not readily available in these small businesses. So we have to learn. Um, about those as we go through and that's probably mm. the most exciting and interesting part of what I do at the moment. Mm, can imagine uh, certainly Michael and um, just out of interest uh, considering that we've talked about people that have had a real impact and influence on um, yourself who are some of those people if you don't mind me asking who have maybe had the greatest influence on you throughout your career? I think I've been very very lucky um, throughout my career. Um, the first person that I, I worked for as a, a trainee engineer in, in ICI was a guy called Andrew Hill. Um, and he has had a significant um, impact on my career as, as it's gone forward um, in terms of giving me the exposure to learn and learning from his skills and knowledges and looking at um, how he ran his own um, department, you know, very effectively, very efficiently. Um, and then as I moved through the, the graduate development scheme within ICI, there was um, other managers, um, a guy called David Lott. Um, in fact, it's, it's, it's difficult to um, actually start to name people because there have been so many people who have um, benefited me that I don't actually want to miss out on, on some of those people. But, um, you know, um, fantastic people who have um, had great careers themselves, but who were very motivated and very interested to look at developing people who work for them and, and you know, give them their head and, and let them, um, you know, choose a path that aligned with the business purpose, but 
gave a lot of freedoms in terms of um, things that we could do and um, encouraged me to learn all the time, um, technically and managerially, as we went through the process. Mm, sounds really, really interesting uh, from that um, perspective, uh, Michael, for sure. And based upon all of the experience um, that you have had, both, of course, in learning from these um, individuals and also from just your own experience um, in business, we mustn't forget, of course, that experience is also a great teacher in its own right. If you were to give some advice to somebody who was about to start their first day in a leadership role within business, what sort of advice would you give them? I think thing that has benefited me the most in my own career is to have had uh, a very broad uh, background and grounding in the initial years of the career. When you leave university, you want to see yourself on a development and, and a promotional track that brings you up along the organization in terms of seniority um, as quickly as possible. And that's a natural um, desire for driven and motivated people. Um, one of the things that benefited me greatly was as part of the graduate track that I was on, um, we were moved fairly regularly between roles within the business. Um, so we, we got opportunities for um, on the ground plant engineering, for commissioning, for project management. Um, and all of those gave us a new aspect um, that really strengthened the baseline. And once you develop that baseline, um, then the process by which you move through um, the organization and gain seniority can, can actually accelerate so that after a period of time, you're actually much further ahead than maybe if you've taken some of the early promotional opportunities. So one of the um, things that we looked at, and I must admit I, I didn't exactly see the vision of people at the time, was to ensure that we had that very broad base mm. um, of experience and knowledge and it also drove a, a situation whereby you had to learn on a regular basis every six to 12 months a completely new skill. Um, so I kept learning and education as part of your ongoing driver. Um, and again, if I look at my current business, um, while it is technical, it is engineering based, there's a lot of biology in it, which um, I knew nothing about when we started. But my wife is, is a very good biologist and she brought the biology to what I needed to do. So. You know, from that point of view, um, looking at the learning and looking at the experience of people around you can be of great benefit. And if we think about the future um, from a business perspective now, Michael, before we do wrap things up on the uh, the program today, in terms of the next 12 months as we move through the current uh, COVID-19 situation and hopefully out of the other side, what do you envision for yourself and for the uh, business? And also, what do you hope to achieve beyond then as well? Um, I think moving out of the uh, current uh, pandemic situation is going to raise a lot of challenges. Um, we've got some specific um, challenges because we um, work in the water and wastewater industry. Um, so we've got some specific exposure um, concerns that we need to manage with our people. Um, but we also have a, a huge opportunity here because looking at um, water and wastewater sources gives us potential to track and monitor future outbreaks um, to allow a more focused uh, response um, so to hopefully manage um, any potential lockdown situations to minimize their impacts in the future. Um, that's going to require a lot of research and development for us um, so that we can support that process. 
But it's been interesting that one of the things that um, the industry in this country has done is it has changed in response to the pandemic where you've got organizations who look at making hand sanitizer rather than uh, whiskey and drinks. And you've got people who look at making PPE um, rather than their normal uh, product lines. So that shows when you're flexible and when you can think outside the box, um, that opportunities can arise to contribute to the greater good, but also to have a, a developed business model um, as we go forward. We were in the position where we were developing um, new products um, for the wastewater industry. That is our, our main source of business at the moment. Um, that is likely to accelerate and to develop as um, we come out of the, the pandemic situation and we move into the new business world. And I think it's important that our business and social world is going to be different um, as we move forward and, and things move on. Because you know what we all need to know is mm-hmm. that while things at the moment are uncertain and they are very difficult, that there is a, a brave, bright new world out there and we need to skill up and learn how we're going to live in that new world and to develop and grow our businesses. And that's very much where our focus is at the moment. Absolutely right, uh, Michael. It is the only way really to continue to adapt and to innovate, to be ready to seize upon the new opportunities that will be there as a result of this changing environment, but also to be ready to survive within that environment as well. And once we do start to see that taking shape over the next year or so, I think from a listener's perspective, it would actually be fantastic to have you back on the air with us to discuss how things are going in that respect, because it's been a really, really informative experience, Michael, having you on the air with us uh, today and also really enjoyable as well. Well, thank you very much. I've enjoyed it. and it's, um, You've actually challenged some of the ways in which I'm thinking and things that I might not have um, thought about before. So um, I've really enjoyed it. And uh, yes, I would love to come back at uh, some stage in the future and let you know how we're getting on. That's really good to uh, hear, Michael. As I said, been an absolute pleasure and do take care and do stay safe with everything still going on in the meantime as well. Thank you very much. That was Michael Dooley, Managing Director at Strathkelvin Instruments. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is an active member of the House of Lords, a former Labour MP and Secretary of State, and also the Chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Despite being blind from birth, Lord Blunkett rose to prominence to become one of the most notable politicians of his generation, having held a number of senior positions in Tony Blair's cabinet and having served as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. He was elevated to the House of Lords in August of 2015 as Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough and I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew enjoyed speaking with him. That's coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much, it's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help, I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can 
uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the, the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for a British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, we'll be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. 
and they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there's a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, 
a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centres in London. 
But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. Because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future 
in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June, This obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why 
the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back. Perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. 
We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Sakir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority, and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him 
which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn mm -hmm. from each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.